I think one of the the difficulties is is wanting to, um, I suppose, do do Hodaya justice. Um, I think, you know, usually in this circumstance, we would be debating about what what to do with what happened, what's the best way forward, what would they have wanted. But um, Hodaya left us very clear messages and instructions that he wanted us to share his story. He explicitly said um, moments before he died before he died that he wanted us to tell the media and he wanted people to know why he why he was doing what he did. Sarah, how how often are activists from Refugee Rights Action Network, other activists around Australia, fielding these kind of calls? I mean, maybe not as uh, as extreme as this, but uh, this is a common part of, uh, I guess, the work that you're doing. I th- I think it is a very common part. I think, I mean, people are often, um, I suppose, very very deep in despair at their situation. They're often quite powerless. Um, you know, if they're in a detention centre, it's indefinite, there's no sentence. So that feeling of uncertainty, I think, really kind of soaks into people's mental health and their their ability to be able to see in the future. I think that this incident in particular is quite rare because I think this man was dying with a purpose. But in saying that, this is the third self-immolation we've had in two years. So people may or may not remember in June, July last year, there was a Tamil asylum seeker who was on a bridging visa who also set himself on fire. And a few months ago, we saw um, another man do it in Yonge Hill Detention Centre. So I think we're ever increasingly seeing a pattern in this type of behaviour and this degree of desperation. It feels a bit funny to be, in one sense, focusing on, on you and I guess the the challenges as an activist uh, when, of course, uh, you know, you're there and you're wanting to keep focus on, on the people that you're, you're serving and trying desperately to help who are, of course, in just totally awful and desperate situations. But I just uh, I feel a responsibility to to stay focused on you just for, for a moment in going through what you have. Um, you know, can you talk to us about the kind of support that you, you have amongst, uh, amongst the refugee rights uh, network in, in looking after each other in the work that you're doing? Um, I suppose we we have been really fortunate um, considering the circumstances. We have had an outpouring of love, support, um, extended love and support extended to us by refugee advocates all around the country. And I mean, on the day we had people calling us, you know, to check in with us that we were okay. Um, and I suppose in a way it was kind of fortuitous that we were together when it happened. Um, that I happened to be sitting next to Michelle at the time. So in that sense, it happened, so the burden wasn't wasn't borne by one person. But I mean, yeah, in terms of support, we've, we've been quite blessed with the love of the refugee rights community. Sarah, I'm interested in broadening this out to mental health workers and to you know health workers more broadly that are working with asylum seekers and refugees. And I'm thinking here of the, the doctors and nurses at uh, Melbourne's Royal Children's Hospital who were protesting recently. What onus, from your point of view, I guess, is is there on people uh, working in, in these areas of health to, to be speaking up for the rights of refugees at this time? I think there there is a huge onus on health workers and I guess 
anybody who's in a community service where, where they interact with refugees. I think that the government has, you know, has put such weight upon oppressing refugees and taking their rights away and basically, you know, creating conditions that are directly unsafe for them, that as health workers we have, you know, the power and the influence to be able to say that this shouldn't be happening. And I mean, as someone who works um, as a mental health support worker with children, you know, if I am aware that abuse is happening, I'm obligated to report it. And I think if you're a healthcare worker, um, you know, the equivalent of that is to say we do not support and we're not going to tolerate people being sent back to conditions where we know there will be abuse. You know, if if I wasn't, if I didn't have a polit- political understanding of why this man did what he did, all I would be left with to interpret the situation is that someone has set themselves on fire. Yeah. But with with my political understanding, I realised that what he did was symptomatic of the political conditions that caused his mental health to deteriorate. And I mean, to expand upon that, what happened was awful. But now, you know, we're dealing with the aftermath, which is to tell the story and to use the story to illustrate the desperation that people are in so that his death isn't in vain. And I think that he very much, that's how he intended it. I think he had planned what he was going to do and he had planned the impact that it was going to take and that he specifically called advocates because he knew that they would get his message across. And I think that, you know, changes it from just a tragedy but to an act of political resistance to his situation and, you know, the importance of us to convey it that way as well. Could you talk to us uh, briefly, uh, the refugee uh, rape victim, uh, Somalian refugee, uh, Abiyan, who has just been returned to Nauru. Uh, a statement from her, uh, I was raped on Nauru. I've been very sick. I've never said that I did not want a termination. I never saw a doctor. I saw a nurse at a clinic, but there was no counselling. Uh, I saw a nurse at Villawood, but there was no interpreter. I asked, but was not allowed to talk with my lawyer. Please help me. Awful situation. Uh, what's your comment? What's your call out to, I guess, health workers who have been involved in this case? I think, um, well, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised in this situation if immigration did bypass, you know, particular standard assessments and that type of thing. But my call out would be to any health workers who did interact with her is to speak out and that you have a duty of care to your patients to speak out. And in this situation, you know, that is in her best interest. Her best interest is for people, you know, to know what's happening to her and to stand up for her. And she needs healthcare professionals to take care of her. And that means not being sent back to detention. And that means not being sent back to a place where her oppressors freely roam and where she, you know, is left to continue to live out her trauma. Now, it's obviously a, a strategy uh, of the you know, Abbott and Turnbull governments uh, to trying to put a, a muzzle on, on health workers with some of the legislation that they've passed. Um, could you talk to, to that legislation, please? I think the legislation is a clear attempt to silence healthcare workers and to scare them into not reporting or speaking about what is happening to people from the detention centres and the type of abuse that is occurring. And I think it's one of those things that um, 
we need to resist it. I think that health work, the more health workers that speak out, the less power that legislation has. The power that legislation has in terms of its enforcement is just fear. And in this situation, we need to put it in perspective about what people in detention are actually facing. And in terms of the consequences for a healthcare worker to speak out, it is far less severe than, you know, being in a place where you are open to to being raped, to being abused, to having, you know, insufficient hygiene, shower time and medical treatment that we need we need to resist this legislation and we need to speak out.